this product, the image of this product is linked to this specific place and not to another because I can prove you that it has always been made here and I can provide tangible evidence for that. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Welcome to episode nine of the second season. On this episode, we're going to talk about geographical indications. Those type of IP that protect many of the products we are very familiar with. Let's welcome our guest. My name is Andrea Zappalaglio. I am Italian. I am 33 years old and I am a lecturer in intellectual property law at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom, as well as affiliated research fellow at Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition uh, in Munich, Germany. Well, I uh, completed a PhD in intellectual property law at the University of uh, Oxford. And then uh, I have been a adjunct professor at the University of Milan for a while, teaching the interactions between intellectual property and some uh, issues related to sustainable development. And then I became project coordinator at Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition, where basically I led the, the research team on uh, geographical indications. And, uh, and eventually, I have become a lecturer in intellectual property uh, here, where I'm currently am in the United Kingdom. Thank you. The reason why I invite you to this podcast is that I came across with your upcoming book called The Transformation of EU Geographical Indications Law, The Present, Past and Future of the Origin Link. Well, uh, the book is uh, inspired um, initially by my PhD thesis, but then, of course, it has expanded over the years to cover other areas of the subject, uh, which I have researched. Basically, I was struck by the fact that uh, in uh, the law of geographical indications, and I am making, I'm referring here specifically to the uh, sui generis GI system. So not, for instance, like a system um, like the one that exists in the, in the United States, where the geographical indication is mostly protected through trademarks. So I'm talking about a sui generis system, so protect, a system that protects the geographical indication as such. In these systems, um, the origin link, so basically how you demonstrate and how you can analyze the exclusive or essential connection between a place and the product that is protected. The origin link is the core of the system. And yet I saw little um, literature on the point or maybe literature which was maybe not written in English. For instance, there was some French literature on the point, few English literature. And in this context, the idea of reputation of the product, maybe you remember Article 22 of the TRIPS agreement, which says that you need a connection based on quality, reputation on other characteristics. And the reputational element, when we talk about European foodstuffs, has become statistically the most important linking factor. And yet uh, no one really knew what that meant in practice, apart from a generic market related reputation. And so I thought, OK, let's let's try to explore this uh, this topic and to understand something more. Very interesting. And can you tell us what is a geographical indication and how it's different from other intellectual property protections or figures? Well, a geographical indication is a sign that indicates origin. 
So it's an origin label. If you uh, take a look at the international level, so for instance, uh, the TRIPS agreement or the uh, Lisbon agreement on appellation of origin, you will see that uh, basically the uh, the rule uh, consists uh, in um, in the description of an origin link. So, for instance, uh, the TRIPS agreement, which introduced uh, at international level the concept of geographical indication, states that, as I said, uh, you um, the geographical indication is the name of a place, a region, or in exceptional cases, a country with which there is a link between a product and the play and that place. So the place uh, ha- uh, gives the name of a product, and there must be a link between the two. And this link can be qualitative, reputational, or other. The Lisbon Agreement, for instance, is more demanding and requires an exclusive connection or essential connection between the two, dictated by the physical uh, peculiarities of the area, together with the human element. So the uh, the human know-how that makes the product what it is. So it's a bit more uh, complex and uh, related to a concept which uh, which is a French word. Terroir. So basically, you can say that a product comes from a specific place only if you can prove that the product owes its own qualities to the physical and human peculiarities of a specific area. These are, you know, broad definitions. And then at the national level, regions or countries have developed their own systems. So there are countries. Uh, or let's say regions like the European Union that have developed a pretty complex uh, ad- administration-based, registration-based system of sui generis geographical indications. But there are also countries, for instance, the United States that don't like this system. Uh, generally, common law countries don't like this system. And so base the protection of geographical indications on different systems, for instance, trademark, uh, but also, you know, unfair competition law or passing off, um, et cetera, et cetera. So why are geographical indications different, for instance, from trademarks, but also from other quality labels. Well, the first thing is that, uh, as I said, the geographical indication is an origin label. So uh, instinctively, we believe, of course, that if a product is an origin product, it has a specific quality. Many niche products, which are really high quality, are protected by geographical indication. But per se, the geographical indication indicates a substantive link between a product and a place. So for instance, uh, geographical indication is very different from other quality labels. So think of the, um, think about the, the fair trade um, trademark. Uh, that's a mark that tells us how the product was made, but not necessarily where. So it tells us that the mark was the, um, that the product was made in a way that respects the workers, that respects the communities, that maybe respects the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But per se, doesn't tell us where. Instead, the geographical indication tells us that a product comes from that place, but not from a formal perspective, from a substantive perspective. Then, you know, you can like it, you can dislike it, it can be very good, uh, or you can find it very bad. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. Then there are other aspects. So, for instance, as a general rule, trademark law uh, excludes uh, geographical names for protection because they are considered, of course, descriptive. Instead, GIs protect specifically geographical names. And then there are, of course, other nuances, but those depend on the system of protection. So, for instance, in the European Union, 
if you want to register a geographical indication, you have two levels of examination. So first you apply at the national level. And if your national application is successful, you go at EU levels. There are two levels. If you want to apply for a geographical indication, you need to be a, a group of, of applicants as a general rule. Instead, of course, this doesn't apply to trademarks. And then, you know, in the European Union, the geographical indication, uh, the different forms of the geographical indication, so the protected designation of origin, the protected geographical indication, constitute what is known as a quality scheme. So it's not just a label that you use on the marketplace, but uh, if you have a registered GI, you are part of a broader system of protection. For instance, if you are, you know, the beneficiary or the user of a geographical indication, you know that the state, so the public administration, will contribute to monitoring the marketplace and also to act in case of infringement. So there is a kind of a public or quasi-public monitoring and enforcement system that you definitely don't have in uh, for trademarks, where, of course, enforcement and monitoring is completely left to the trademark owner. Uh, and this, of course, is, is an example that shows you the huge difference between the two systems, at least in the European Union and in jurisdictions which have adopted a EU-style approach to geographical indications. So for instance, if you're a small producer in a remote area and you register a geographical indication, you know that probably the, your monitoring and enforcement expenses are going to be pretty low because you are part of an overall scheme that supports you also in that regard. And that's fascinating. And do you have in mind any examples of geographical indications? Many, uh, you know, if you want <laughs> wines, uh, if you want, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been. Give us I've been, everything I, that is great in the EU. <laughs> I, you know, I have analyzed uh, the specifications and the techniques uh, of uh, all the technicalities of geographical indications for many years now. So, you know, uh, th there are thousands of registered names. But of course, if I say uh, Champagne, wine, or if I say cognac, or if I say, for instance, Parma ham, or if I say uh, Spanish uh, Rioja, Greek feta, for instance, these, these are all products that in the EU are protected as geographical indications, but they find also protection in other jurisdictions, because as you probably know, the EU is actually negotiating a lot and has negotiated and concluded a lot of bilateral agreements and geographical indications play a role in those bilateral agreements. So the EU is really pushing uh, the protection of geographical indications uh, a lot, at least, in, at least in this period. Bilateral agreements is when one nation agrees with another nation directly. It's um, different from other agreements where usually it's a group of countries negotiating towards an end. That's the ones you usually see in internationalizations. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. I cannot say, um, I cannot say better. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so for instance, let's say that you, have a, that you have a trade agreement or an investment agreement, etc., between the EU and another country. The EU is probably going to, to ask for a section on geographical indications to be included. So let's say we are talking about patents or investments, etc. We also want geographical indications to be there. And so generally, what do you do? Generally, you agree on a list of products, both, of course, countries that are negotiated, uh, that are negotiating. And, uh, and so you say, okay, I want you to protect these products in your jurisdiction, uh, and I will do the same. And you must apply a level of protection that I consider 
to be enough. And generally, the EU requires high protection standards for mm-hmm. its geographical indications. And what is the advantage for the consumer or for the holder of these geographical indications? And what is the disadvantage? Well, you know, the the advantage for the consumer is that they can identify on the marketplace product that uh, they know come from a specific uh, geographical area. And, you know, geographical uh, geographical origin has a value. You know, there are products that enjoy a specific uh, reputation um, and therefore, you know, the consumers are willing to pay more, et cetera, et cetera, because they come from a specific area. So, for instance, we consider champagne wine better than other forms of uh, sparkling wine. So consumers are able to identify the origin of these products thanks to the labels. The problem is that uh, often, um, you know, if, if you look at the European Union, for instance, there are countries which have a very old, ancient tradition of appellations of origin and geographical indications, for instance, France and Italy, but also, for instance, Spain, uh, uh, to some extent, Greece and other. Um, So there are countries where the consumers are more aware of the meaning of the geographical indication than um, other countries. And yet, if you take a look at uh, the official figures of the European Union, basically, there is, is, for instance, an economic report that dates back to 2019, but it has been recently updated, if I'm not mistaken. You can see that the geographical indication works when it comes to supporting local communities. So it is true that the geographical indication helps the the producers both from a promotional perspective and also from a really practical economic perspective. So GI products on average um, are, uh, let's say, more expensive than ordinary products of the same kind. They are able to charge more. So there is an advantage for the producers. And also remember that uh, the trademark have an owner. The geographical indication has beneficiaries or users. So uh, you agree on a specification, you register, you register it, but then the specification does not belong to you. This means that pretty much everyone who wants to make the product in the designated area can go, can make that product. And as long as all the rules of the specifications are respected, uh, it's like um, an open access IP right. Sounds strange, but geographic indications are strange. This, of course, cannot be done for uh, for trademark. And this also means, if you think about it, that the geographical indication favors um, collective management of the production and favors, I mean, pushes the producers to um, to work together, which is, of course, not always very easy. And this is why sometimes drafting specifications can take five, four years. But overall, I think the system is uh, is paying uh, is paying off. These advantages uh, may be, of course, that um, the, first of all, in in the European Union, geographical indications are super protected, maybe sometimes overprotected, and there is an ongoing debate. I make you an example. There is, um, if you if you take a look at the relevant regulation, uh, you will see that uh, the geographical indication is also protected against evocation. What's an evocation? No one really knows outside the European Union because it's not something that belongs to trademarks. You know, trademarks are based on um, protection against likelihood of confusion or you have an enhanced level of protection for well-known brands. But you will not find the word evocation in any, at least not trademark laws I am aware of. So basically, the idea is that the geographical indication is protected against pretty much 
everything. And uh, you, you cannot even mention, I mean, a geographical indication on the marketplace because that would be an evocation. And um, there was a recent case about uh, a cheese where basically they said that evocation is also mimicking the, sh the, the famous shape of a well-known GI kind of cheese. So I believe we are going a little bit too far. And every time I talk to a colleague who's not European, for instance, from Australia or Canada or the United States, they say, please, whatever you do, please cut the word evocation from your law because it doesn't exist. We don't know what it is. And you are exaggerating. So um, GIs are a very important topic in the EU. I think they are extremely uh, policy, um, policy uh, I mean, I mean, sensitive. think that uh, the current president of the European Commission, Mrs. Von, von der Leyen, she even mentioned specifically geographical indications in the letter that she sent to all the European commissioners when she was elected um, president of the of the commission. So in the letter that she sent to the commissioner of agriculture, she explicitly said, you must focus on the protection of geographical indication. And that was the first time it happened in the history of the European Union. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. There is an exception in the trademark world that um, let's say that my business is repairing on a specific product. So let's say I have the one we always use. I repair cars and I need to showcase which cars I'm able to repair. So for that, I'm allowed to use the brand names of um, Toyota, Nissan, and so on. And I'm not infringing on trademark because that's the only way I can do my business. So in the geographical indication world, according to this evocation uh, specification, it is not possible then. I mean, it's uh, as, as, as a general rule, the answer would be no. Then, of course, you can use the, um, the, uh, the name of the geographical indication to make your business. So let's say that you are selling those products. Maybe you are not a producer but you are a seller of those products. Oh, of course, of course you can do. There have been issues, for instance, think of this scenario. Um, there is a famous product uh, protected by GI and uh, there are some producers that uh, uh, live in the same area, but they don't agree with the specification uh, or anyway, they don't want to join the producer association. Those minorities sometimes, not always, because it is possible to find solutions, but there have been cases where sometimes these Niche producers who don't want to join the producers association that have registered the GI or don't want to follow the specification because they don't agree with it, um, they cannot use the same uh, geographical name. So maybe they can use a more generic name, but using the geographical name can be extremely dangerous for them. Yes, of course, because it's also a way of protecting the consumer, because um, when the consumer looks at the product and sees the geographical indication, it assumes that it has the same processing, the same elements and the same conditions has the one that usually follow the steps that everyone agree on. So makes sense from the consumer points of view as well. Makes sense from the consumer point of view. Uh, and this as a general rule is, of course, one of the things that uh, geographical indications want to achieve. That's absolutely fine. What I'm saying is that sometimes uh, we have complex scenarios where uh, geographical indication, if it's not used carefully, can, you know, have negative effects on maybe variants of the product that maybe are perfectly legitimate. Mm -hmm. And yet, because they don't, uh, they, are, they are not included into a specification, they cannot be marketed under that name. 
remember, the processes are free to use. It's the name that you cannot use. Mm -hmm. So um, I can make uh, a sparkling wine using the same method of production of champagne. But if I make it, uh, I don't know, somewhere else, let's say in Italy, I cannot, of course, use the name champagne. It's a difficult topic here because most of the times it works well. Most of the times it works well. But uh, I agree with those, for instance, I have colleagues who work, for instance, in the field of traditional cultural expressions or traditional knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, be careful with geographical indications because the geographical indication, if it's uh, not used carefully, can uh, hide and cut off, let's say, traditional variants, which are absolutely valid, but maybe they're, they're not recognized by the largest majority and therefore you cannot use them under the, the registered name. Talking about the elements that a GI needs in order to receive the protection, which are the elements if I'm a community, a group of local producers, I want to submit or register a geographical indication? Well, uh, as a general rule, you need, uh, all you need to be a group of applicants. Second, you need to show evidence of an origin link. If you want to, re if, uh, let's, let's say that uh, we are in the European Union and uh, we want to register Uh, protected designation of origin, which is basically the appellation of origin that you see in the Lisbon Agreement on the protection of appellations of origin. In that case, you need uh, quite a demanding link. So you need to show that the qualities of the products of your product are linked to the specificity of the geographical area and that uh, you as a community have developed a specific know-how, a human element that also contributes to make the product what it is. So You need, uh, let's say, a physical environmental link and a human link. If you want to register a protected geographical indication, which is basically what you see at Article 22 of the TRIPS Agreement, you have a less demanding standard. So you have three kinds of origin link. The first is qualitative, which is similar to the appellation of origin. So qualitative link means you must show me that the qualities of your product are linked to the specificities of the place. And so the qualities are, uh, you know, how the product is, the, the smell, the taste, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you can also provide evidence of uh, reputation. Reputation basically means I can show you that um, consumers identify my product because of its name and consider it different from the others. So kind of a market reputation. So there are products which, you know, don't, maybe don't grow from the soil. So you cannot really prove a physical link with an area. And yet, no doubt, they are linked to a very specific place. Think of traditional kinds of bread, for instance. Bread doesn't grow from the soil, but yet it's pretty clear that very famous uh, kinds of bread are associated by the consumers to a specific place. Um, then uh, how you provide a reputational, uh, uh, an evidence of reputation, it varies. It can be consumer service, it can be books of recipes, but can also be, and this is pretty fascinating, historical evidence. So basically you can say, This product, the image of this product is linked to this specific place and not to another because I can prove you that it has always been made here and I can provide tangible evidence for that. So this is the basic. And then in the European Union, this is a peculiarity though, there is a second element. So not just the origin link, but you have another element which is called locality requirement. Locality requirement means how much of the product must be made in the designated area. This is something I don't think you will find 
anywhere else. No, well, maybe some national legislation, yes, but there is no trace of such um, of such an element in the Lisbon Agreement or in the TRIPS Agreement. So, for instance, in the case of a PDO, the product must be entirely made in the designated area. So you must source also the raw materials from the designated area. There can be exceptions, but this is the general rule. Instead, the PGI is way more flexible. So um, basically, just one step of the production process has to take place in the designated area. The production process means everything that happens from the sourcing of the raw material up until the end of the, um, of the production. So when you have the uh, end product, uh, excluding passages like uh, slicing, packaging, cutting, etc., etc. So in that case, let's say that I want to make a piece of, uh, of, of bread. Uh, I am a producer of traditional bread from somewhere in Europe. I have a reputational link because my product is very well known. It is well known that it comes from my area, not to another area. If I make the product in the designated area, if I bake it in the designated area, I can source the flour, the, the, the salt or whatever I need from another area. And yet it's going to be PGI, not a PDO, of course. Where do you see the future of GI um, evolving? Because in your book, you talk about the evolution that happens with these elements. Can you take us from how they started, the evolution um, that happened that you described, and where do you see them going? Like, from past, present, and future in, in this element. So for, first of all, uh, generally speaking, uh, I mentioned this before, but uh, um, the geographical indications, the way you protect geographical indication is a pretty controversial issue at international level because uh, there is not a universal agreement on how you should protect them. So the United States adopt a model, the US adopted another model. Um, some countries have adopted a U-style model, but other will never do that. So first of all, when we talk about mm, the current status, the past and the future of GI protection, it's always better to say in what area. So as a, as a European citizen, um, I have studied the EU system, uh, which is the, let's say, the, 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 the most important, the most relevant, if you want, example of a sui generis protection system with different peculiarities. There is a lot of administration involved. It's registration based, et cetera, et cetera. This system, you know, emerged uh, uh, a little more than a century ago um, in France, basically. So uh, there was the need to protect French wine from counterfeiting, from uh, adulteration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, the pure indication of source. So basically, the indication of source is what you find in the Paris Convention. So it's the made in label uh, was not able to provide a real solution because it's, uh, it, it provides a formal solution, but not necessarily a substantive uh, solution. So for instance, if I tell you that, um, uh, you know, I, I, let's say that I take some uh, cheap sparkling wine made in, uh, like from Germany, I bring it to the Champagne region, I bottle it in the Champagne region, and I sell it in the Champagne region. Formally, that, that's, uh, that the product comes from the Champagne region. I marketed it there, and yet we, we all know it's not Champagne. Because to determine, you know, the nature of a product, you need to know the substantive link that it has with an area and not to another area. And you have to know how the product was made. It must be made in accordance with shared rules. 
And so the French producer says we must said we must link uh, agronomy, enology, and and law. And so this was the first, let's say, uh, this was the beginning of the concept of appellation of of origin, where you need a link between the product and basically the um, not only the human but the physical peculiarities of an area. And this is intuitive because, of course, you, you are talking about wine and wine is something that, uh, you know, grape vines grow from the soil. So there is a very strong and intuitively, you know, physical link. But then it was not enough. And so they said we must protect cheeses as well. And then olive oil and then uh, um, uh, ham or other forms of processed meat. So the paradigm started expanding, expanding, expanding. And um, one thing that I, I see in the food sector, not necessarily in the wine sector, but in the food sector, I see that the history of the product started pay, uh, playing always a more and more and more important role. Uh, then, of course, we, we had the, the, the new European system. So in 1992, the protected, the protected designation of origin and the protected geographical indication were officially introduced in the EU. Uh, at first from foodstuffs, but then it, the system was uh, expanded. Uh, and uh, now we have PDOs and PGIs also for wine. So the system kept on expanding, expanding, expanding. So now we have a, a, a system, a situation where um, basically in wine, the PDO is still the, the leading quality scheme. Mm, because it was designed basically initially for, for wines, the appellation of origin. In foodstuffs, instead, we have way more PGIs and the reputational link, which, you know, to some extent is maybe easier to, to prove, uh, has become the predominant uh, kind of link for foodstuffs. Remember that PGI and PDO provide the same level of protection. So it's intuitive that if you're a producer, you have two routes that lead to the same result. You're going to take the easier route. So at the moment, this is the situation. So at least in the field of foodstuffs, we have a system which, in my view, is, uh, well, it's based basically on the protected geographical indication. And... Uh, these protected geographical indications are based, of course, on the market reputation of the product, but more and more also on what I call the historical element, which means evidence of the history of the product that links the product and the image of the product to a specific place. What is the future? The, the predominance of the PGI, I think, will lead the, to the expansion of the EU model to uh, non-agricultural GIs, because this is a very weird thing, a uh, very EU peculiarity. So in the European Union, we protect wine, spirits, aromatized wines, foodstuff, but not non-agricultural products, basically handcrafts. This is a unique peculiarity of the European Union, which cannot be explained um, from a legal or technical perspective, because we have a country, for instance, like India. In India, the model of protection of GIs is very similar to the, to the protected geographical indication, which, which is basically a different form that the TRIPS geographical indications can take. And India protects way more non-agricultural products than agricultural products. So the EU doesn't, doesn't do that uh, for historical reasons. 
in fact, I am currently working as um, as advisor for a EU project which is researching on a possible expansion of the EU system to non-agricultural GIs. I am convinced that from a legal perspective, it can be made. And also that, you know, the PGI is based on the reputation of the product, can be based on the reputation of the product. And this means that pretty much any product can have a reputation linked to a place. You don't need something that grows from the soil to fulfill this requirement. So I, I, I think that that is going to be the future. So the, an expansion of the system, maybe the EU thinks, uh, is thinking of, um, maybe the EU Court of Justice is thinking of strengthening the protection even more. I don't know, because over the last year, we have seen decisions that have really provided uh, st- super strong protection. So I don't know whether we have already reached the ultimate level or not. But this is what is going to do. It's going to happen, I believe. And of course, from an international perspective, the EU, I think, will keep on protecting GIs in a kind of um, aggressive way and pushing bilateral agreements that also include uh, GI chapters. Yeah, well, aggressive, let's say protective way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some people say protective, some other people say Mm -hmm. aggressive, because many times, uh, uh, at least this is what uh, negotiators from third countries have said, uh, GIs have become many times a kind of a deal breaker, you know, to say Mm -hmm. you either add this chapter or, or not. Of course, European producers are extremely happy. And it is a fact that the EU model is spreading because uh, China has uh, a system inspired by the EU, other countries. Russia recently uh, revised its um, GI law in an EU system. India is, has a different system, but anyway, the general principles are the same. So um, maybe it's not just uh, because the EU is bad. Maybe it's because different jurisdictions are recognizing the value of a new style level of uh, protection. Also, countries in South America, for instance, are taking this into consideration. One of the things about intellectual property, sometimes even if you have all the rights, you have all the registrations, it's, it's very hard for you to assert those rights because probably you don't know where to go. It's not as easy to pursue if someone is infringing your IP. But in the scheme that you're describing to us in the EU, um, there's actually, it's not only that you, you are part of a community because you hold a GI, but also the EU itself protects everyone that is under the, the GI, just uh, protects them and pursue whoever will be um, overstepping or violating uh, those rights, which is something for a small producer, for a local community with scarce resources is a, is a game changer. At the end of the story, I mean, in the supermarkets, the geographical indications looks like a label. So it's up to you to promote it. So there are many groups of producers mm-hmm. who have a geographical indication and then fail to make the most out of it for the simple reason that if consumers don't really recognize it, maybe you are not getting the economic results that you want. And it's also a fact that it, the most important producers in the European Union, they were already, let's say, successful and well-established before the Uh, EU uh, GI system that we have today was uh, introduced. So uh, there is always probably the need of reasoning on a kind of a case by case uh, analysis and Mm -hmm. to be balanced. But of course, GIs are a a unique kind of intellectual property right because they can serve, if you want, non-trade related purposes extremely well, or at least this is what the European Commission believes. For instance, 
the European Union has recently introduced is um, Green Development Agenda. It's Green Development Agenda, which has different actions. One action is called Farm to Fork Strategy, and GI, among other things, play a role into it. So GI, a GI, and it goes without saying that probably a trademark would not work in the same way. So the GI is also a strategic asset to obtain non-trade-related results. For instance, protecting landscape, protecting environment, empowering local uh, communities, or sustain communities living in rural areas. Is it all like this, like a fairy tale, etc.? No. It requires planning. It requires strategy. You have to know what you're doing. A little bit of public intervention is required, I have to say, because after all, the GI under many aspects is an hybrid, you know, private public scheme. And yet you can use GIs for doing things that you would not normally be able to do in uh, with, with other labels. I mean, that's that, that's for sure, I think. So, Andrea, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing with us uh, your great knowledge on this topic. Best of luck with your book. Uh, again, the title is The Transformation of EU Geographical Indications Law, The Present, Past and Future of the Origin Link. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. It's going to be published near the end of May. Thank you very much for having me and for having this very interesting discussion. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.